FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. If I had to choose an organizing theme that I would like to build today's show around, I think it would be a very simple sentence. You are not alone. The anxieties, the, uh, the uh, fears, uh, the somewhat uh, unsettled nature of the way you look at life right now uh, is being shared by a lot of people. And we're going to talk about that with our uh, top panel of mental health professionals in a few minutes. I, For me, I began noticing about a month ago that I was feeling lower than I usually do. I've always been a very upbeat person. I, I sort of go through life feeling that things are always going to get better, be good, and get better. And I suddenly started feeling myself feeling a little lethargic, feeling um, down in the dumps. Maybe depression is another word you would use for it. I mean, I don't think I'm clinical, but I've been feeling low. Uh, one of my closest friends described his feeling as saying he felt like he's in a malaise, which is another word for it. And that is he talks to other people. He thinks they, too, have been experiencing that same sense of kind of driftlessness now that the pandemic is back upon us once again. Um, so we will talk about that, and, and we will also, add, in this conversation, be mindful of the fact that while some of us are experiencing some rather mild and moderate symptoms, there are people who have been suffering in much, much more severe ways, and we'll talk about that uh, during the show as well. Uh, we're joined, of course, on Fridays by Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and columnist. You read Patricia's column every Wednesday and Friday in the newspaper, and uh, she oversees The Jolt, which you can look at at AJC.com uh, every day. Patricia, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Hey, before I introduce the rest of the panel, I want to point to a story that's on the front page of the AJC that I think in some ways makes a point about the kind of strange place we find ourselves. Uh, yesterday, doctors and nurses from uh, major hospitals across metro Atlanta came together and held a news conference, and they essentially begged Georgians to get vaccinated and to take other steps to spread, to, to uh, mitigate the spread of COVID-19, saying that their emergency rooms, their ICUs are filled. And, and just a couple hours later, Governor Kemp held a news conference where he made an announcement saying he had signed an executive order that blocks cities from forcing private businesses to enact mask mandates or mandate uh, vaccines or to take other actions to mitigate the coronavirus. That tension uh, it, it, it lends itself to the anxiety I think a lot of us are feeling, Patricia. Who's we're being pulled back and forth and reality seems to have slipped from our grasp. Yeah, I think the problem that we're seeing, not only is it politicized, obviously, but also um, particularly the way the governor has set this up, it is as if we're having to make a choice between health and business or health and prosperity or health and just making it day to day. And that is just not the case. In fact, I would argue that the more people are vaccinated, the more we can get back to normal. Um, but it's just the way we're framing these debates. I hate that a political season is, is leaning down on us, and I think that's having a big effect. Okay. With that said, let's go ahead and introduce our panel. Uh, Dr. Raycott Wiki, Chief Medical Officer of Skyland uh, Trails, uh, which is uh, one of the uh, uh, most highly respected treatment centers uh, for mental health issues in the United States, is with us again, Dr. Kotwicki. Um, I'm very glad to have you back. Um, you have been, on a couple of occasions on this show, my personal 
on-air psychiatrist, and I'm going to call on you in a couple of minutes, along with our other panelists, to do a little of that again. But thank you for being here, Doctor. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's a very high honor and distinction to be your on-air psychiatrist, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Elena Kim is with us as well. She's a psychotherapist at Pathway Center for Psychotherapy. Dr. Kim, tell us just a little bit about the work, the mission at Pathway Center. Yes, uh, so we are a group practice, um, outpatient group practice. We uh, see clients um, for depression, anxiety, and relationship issues. Uh, that's what we do. Okay. Um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us. And Dr. Roy Reese is back with us again. He's the Director of Behavioral Health and Professor at Morehouse School of Medicine and the Director of Behavioral Health at Acoma Counseling and consulting. And Dr. Reese, I think it's fair to say that in addition to a lot of responsibilities you take on uh, children and and their uh, mental health needs is one of the areas that matters a great deal to you. Yes? Absolutely. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you um, again today. And I'm looking forward to our conversation and really looking forward to raising up the issues um, around mental health and how that intersects with physical health and how it impacts our kids. Thank you again for being here. All right, Dr. Kotwicki, you heard me describe my uh, whatever, down in the dumps feeling, malaise, slight depression, and I said, I don't think I'm alone, and I hope people out there hear this and recognize that we're all in this together. But tell me, what am I going through and why? Well, like a lot of other people, Bill, it is a time in our society when there's a confluence of a lot of factors that promote mental illness or decrease mental health. There's a lack of a sense of control, um, a lack of information, uh, significant ambiguity in the direction that we're, see- we're receiving from people who are supposed to be in charge. And together, it really creates this sort of sense, sense of having a huge responsibility without anything that feels like we have self-efficacy to change what's going on. So all told, um, you know, we're seeing an onslaught of people who are newly developing all sorts of mental illnesses. According to the journal Lancet, um, 20% of everybody who actually has been infected with COVID-19 within 90 days after infection will have the new onset of a mental illness. So if you do the math, one in five of people who actually have COVID will have the new onset of a mental illness that they otherwise wouldn't have had. And that doesn't include the social and psychological ramifications of those of us who haven't been infected, but have to deal with the physical distancing and the social disconnection that has accompanied um, stay-at-home orders and all the other things that we've gone through in the past 18 months. So in general, this is a public health crisis, and we're um, calling it the second wave of the pandemic, which is a huge demand and a huge need for mental health services, perhaps without the capacity to meet those needs. Dr. Kim, um, I I think that certainly in my case, what's exacerbated this is um, I thought we'd come through to the other end. I'm fully vaccinated. I was getting back out into the world. Uh, We have a 24-year-old daughter who people in the show who listen to the show know has been working in New York theater. We went to New York to see her show, which was one of the first shows to reopen uh, in the summer. And uh, suddenly, in the middle of that trip, the uh, sad news about the Delta variant and how it was really, really uh, uh, crashing down and all of us hit, and it felt like we, were, we had we'd seen a moment of escape and we were right back in, in the worst situations that we experienced last year, Dr. Kim. Yeah, uh, Bill, what it really sounds like to me that you're dealing with is some form of like pandemic burnout. Um, I mean, you know, we've been burned out about um, the pandemic because it's been going on for more than a year and a half. Um, And definitely with the surge of the Delta variant, you know, that's just exasperated. I think our uh, feelings of burnout, which are very similar to symptoms of depression, like lethargy and lack of interest, energy. Um, We're just sort of all cooped up here, not knowing really what to do. Uh, And you think of it as a fairly common experience right now. I shouldn't feel, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with me? Oh, oh no. Um, I I hear this from my clients um, and also from my friends. Um, Yeah, we're just 
like just like I said, this has been going on forever. Um, so, you know, symptoms of burnout. Um, you know, like there's only so much stress that um, we can take, and when when it goes on and on, and it doesn't seem like there's an end, uh, you begin to wonder, like, how long is this going to go on? Uh, Dr. Reese, uh, I, I, you're welcome to move this conversation well beyond just my own personal <laughs> issues right now. <laughs> well, well, Bill, let, let me first support you. Um, so you, you are having a normal reaction uh, to an abnormal situation, right? And I think that that's one of the things that we have to normalize. So if people are feeling anxiety or feeling depression, feeling malaise, feeling a lack of energy, a lack of motivation, they are a traumatic event that has now lasted over the course of 18 months. You're really having a normal reaction. And so there, there are two pieces there. So there's one, the acknowledgement that there, in fact, is nothing wrong with you, um, that your, your, your resources in terms of kind of responding to that adversity have been tapped, um, and, and you're struggling now. I think the thing that we have to lift up for folks is, so what do you do? Um, we don't want this to become the, the new normal. We want to acknowledge it and say, hey, I'm struggling. I want to acknowledge that I'm struggling. And then we want to talk about health seeking. And we have to model that for our kids. That's actually the thing that I, I really want to lift up. We are seeing a number of kids as they report back to school who are having difficulties adjusting, making the transition back in the social interactions, uh, readjusting to, to in-person school and the rules, mask, no mask. You know, watching the parents or the adults argue, if you will, um, and they're trying to figure out what's going on as well. And I and I think they're taking our cue for how they manage, from how we manage. And so it's okay that 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 more common saying now. It's okay not to be okay. Okay, now what do we do about it? Patricia, jump in. Yeah. So when we talk about our kids, you know, I have eight year old twins and um, it worries me so much every day about what long term impact is this going to have? Because um, day to day, they're happy little people. But long term, I worry about them not seeing people's smiles, not getting to know people fully, not fully connecting with people because it's just so hard. And there have been so many limitations. My son has a class size of eight. And so last year he only knew eight people in his new school. He had a friend, <laughs> you know, he was friends with other people, other people in his class, but just to keep them safe, they kept the classes very small and contained. And I, I worry about them. Um, but I have to say the biggest um, struggle they had last year was the first day of summer. And I thought the first day of summer in my memory was like, yay, school's out for summer. Um, and they were so had so much anxiety because they enjoyed being in school with their teachers, with their support, with people who understood them. And so, you know, those are the long-term changes that I really worry about. And we try and support them the best we can, but none of us have ever been through this before. Dr. Reese. Well, I want to, yeah, I want to piggyback that. And so we, we're, we study adverse childhood experiences, right? And this is a, our, our ACEs. And this is an adverse childhood experience, the likes of which we have never known. And I think uh, we have to be careful, per Patricia's comment, about our focus on kind of the snapshot that is right now about what's going on with our kids, but paying attention over time about how this affects their development um, as, as they uh, mature. Because I think the impact of COVID um, both in terms of his behavioral health manifestations um, and some of his physical health manifestations as we look at what's happening um, in pediatric care are to be determined and will become clearer over the course of months and years. So uh, we really need to have an eye to how we kind of course correct um, and get kids back on the path of healthy and normal adjustment. Uh, well, I think it's uh, an appropriate moment to uh, say, Dr. Kotwicki and Dr. Kim, amplifying what Dr. Reese has just said, the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is, a, by the way, if you, if you are looking for a great website to give you ongoing information about health issues, including uh, COVID, uh, kff.org is a great place to turn. And they just yesterday, Dr. Kotwicki, released a study about young people that I'll share with you just a little bit of. The key findings are these. Um, 
the about four in 10 parents of children ages five and over, and here we're talking about Patricia Murphy's kids to some extent, fell behind academically, 39%. That rose to half of Hispanic parents, 50%, saying their children fell behind. We know the disparity that COVID has exposed in how uh, racial and ethnic uh, Americans are dealing with this has been uh, staggering. Uh, those with lower household incomes, 51%. More than a third, 36% of parents say their child fell behind in social and emotional development. And about 3 in 10, 29%, say their child experienced mental health or behavioral problems due to the pandemic. And I'll read you a line. Notably, parents whose children attended school all or mostly online, or who had a mix of online and in-person schooling, were more likely than parents whose child attended school all or mostly in person say they had a child who had these adverse effects even after controlling for other democratic demographic fact. In other words, if you were learning online, your child probably fell behind, Dr. Kotwicki. Yeah, we're seeing, Bill, that the pandemic is really exacerbating some of the underlying pre-existing things that um, uh, people are dealing with anyway. Um, so, for example, um, patients who have schizophrenia, for example, who can track COVID, have a tenfold increase in risk of actually dying from the virus compared to their cohorts who don't have schizophrenia. Um, children who have a hard time concentrating because they might be developing something like ADHD have an exacerbation in concentration difficulties when they have to learn online and they can't be in person. So in addition to affecting people who don't have the fertile soil for depression or anxiety or any other sort of mental illness, people who already have a genetic predisposition for developing things like learning disorders or developmental problems are experiencing even a greater increase in the impact of um, all the things that go along with the pandemic than those of us who don't have that predisposition. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kim? Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, yes, to, so to uh, piggyback on what um, Dr. Kawiki said, um, yeah, so a lot of my clients, um, you know, if, if they've been dealing with uh, mental health issues or lack of motivation um, and energy before, that, you know, the pandemic only just exasperated it because, you um, it, it takes more effort. It takes more effort to engage. Um, and when um, the energy is not there to begin with, well, where does it come from? Uh, where do you get it? Um, Patricia, uh, let me give you a couple other findings from Kaiser on this subject. Um, and I'm not suggesting that your children are experiencing, the, experiencing these things directly, but, but I'd be interested in your observations about it. Um, Parents say, 27% or, or more of parents say that their student children are having difficulty concentrating on their schoolwork. They're more nervous or easily scared or worried. They're having trouble sleeping, perhaps poor appetites or overeating, stomach aches, headaches. Uh, these are just some of the um, uh, symptoms of this kind of anxiety that COVID has created that Kaiser found in their survey, some parents see in their children, uh, Patricia. Have we lost you, Patricia? I think Patricia, okay, I think we're gonna try to get Patricia back in uh, just a minute. Dr. Reese, what do you think about uh, all of those things? Nervousness, easily scared or worried, trouble sleeping, poor appetite, frequent headaches or stomach aches? So I think you, you're identifying some of the information that we need to arm parents with so that when they see their child kind of responding in a way that feels atypical to how their kid has historically functioned um, or behaved, that they know, hey, there's something going on here. Um, but I think beyond giving them the information about difficulty with sleep or concentrating changes in diet, et cetera, we need to then tell them what to do. One of the things, you know, Dr. Kawicki referred to, this is the second wave of public health crisis and, and he's absolutely right. I think underlying that mental health uh, second wave, however, is we're at actually at a lack of capacity. So part of what we also have to be thinking about is there's this increased need for behavioral health services on the one hand, and, and we really aren't well resourced to respond to that need. 
And so we need to be actively problem solving. So, hey, let's give parents the information that they need to, to be able to identify what's happening with their kids. Let's, let's help them understand kind of what they can do kind of at home. But then also we have to kind of build our capacity in terms of the availability of, of providers to respond to this need. And we're finding increasing, like all the providers in our practice are at capacity in, in terms of their, their patient loads. And we're, we're, we're finding that um, we're having to think about different treatment modalities, like group, uh, et cetera. We're, we're thinking differently about how we're using trainees, like psychiatry fellows or psychology interns. Um, we really have to be thinking about how we meet this unmet need. And this is particularly true in under-resourced communities where the impact has been more pronounced. Dr. Reese has a really good point, and I, I think we would be remiss to not add that it's also incumbent on um, the mental health professionals to help parents identify when it's not just malaise, um, but that a child or a young adult or anybody, for that matter, is really developing a, flow, a full-blown mental illness. Um, you know, shockingly to me, when the CDC did a study of the general population um, in the summer of 2020, 11% of us we're seriously considering suicide. And, um, you know, being uh, disappointed and anxious and feeling malaise is very different than when it progresses to not having hope for your future and not being able to get out of bed because you have such a lack of energy and, and uh, lack of optimism that things are going to get better. And so my, you know, recommendation for anybody is that when you're worried about somebody and people express thoughts that um, things aren't you know, the way that they should and that they're feeling down and blue, um, have a, a meaningful, if not critical, conversation with that person and say, you know, sometimes when people are in a state like that, they start having thoughts of suicide or um, planning to, you know, do things that uh, they otherwise wouldn't do. Um, it's an old wives' tale. It's a myth that by talking about something, you increase the likelihood that people will act on that suggestion if they're not already thinking about suicide. So um, I think it's it's crucially important for parents to have that conversation if a child or young adult is expressing thoughts of, of depression to make sure that they're not in an emergent situation that requires urgent psychiatric intervention. Dr. Reese, you wanted to jump back in and then Dr. Kim. I think you're muted, uh, Dr. Reese. I think you're right. Uh, most families don't have a relationship with a behavioral health provider. Um, and, and so that the first point of, of kind of checking very often is your primary care uh, physician or your, or your pediatrician. Um, let them help you triage, let them help you figure out what's going on here and whether or not to get help. And so I, to, to Dr. Kawicki's point, if you're not sure, give your PCP a call, um, talk about what's going on and allow them to help you figure out what needs to happen next because most PCPs are tied into um, behavioral health providers and can, can help you figure out how to get a referral and get services quicker if that's needed. I think that's an important piece. And we also need to be thinking about those people who don't have a medical home or have a PCP, how we support them getting the support that they need. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kim. Yes, and I also want to say um, I've been um, amazed at how savvy people are about mental health these days. Uh, people are talking to their friends um, and talking about therapy. Hey, are you in therapy? Or, you know, I've been thinking about therapy. Um, and um, they're picking up the phone and making appointments um, and calling therapists to say, hey, I want to talk to someone. So I, want, I really want to encourage that behavior. If you feel like, um, if you're feeling low and you feel like, you know, this is not normal and I need, and I, and I need to talk to someone about it, um, don't hesitate, uh, because there are definitely providers out there who want to help, who want to listen. Um, all right, let's do this. Patricia Murphy, uh, we've reestablished uh, communication with her. And uh, why don't we do this? Let's get a first break of the show out of the way, uh, bring Patricia back into the conversation, and uh, have her join me and the rest of our panel after these messages. <laughs> Patricia Murphy, Dr. Roy Reese, Dr. Elena Kim, and Dr. Ray Kotwicki join us today as we look at mental health issues uh, surrounding uh, COVID-19 and, and, and more. And we may talk about some of the other 
uh, world events that are contributing to the unease that we're experiencing right now. But Patricia, I do think there's a happy coincidence that we are talking about mental health on the 94th birthday of Rosalind Carter. Mental health has been one of her most important issues for uh, many, many years. They're naming a street for her down there in uh, Plains today and adding a new butterfly garden. She's a great believer in monarch butterfly preservation. And so we want to send out our best wishes to uh, Rosalind Carter on her uh, birthday. Uh, Patricia Ernie Suggs, your colleague at the AJC, did a terrific little story about that this morning that I encourage people to read. Yes, uh, he did. And he um, talked about her work on mental health and then um, also just about so much about what she did to really deal with the stigma surrounding mental health and help people understand yeah. that mental health is as real as physical health. Um, and haven't we seen that so much with Olympic athletes and um, with uh, tennis stars struggling with mental health and uh, and people finally putting both of those categories into the same level of, of critical importance and critical care that's necessary. And when I'm talking to um, leaders around the state, I have to say that I um, hear from every mayor I talk to how important mental health is for their public policy plans. They mm. see people struggling with mental health right now in a way that they never have. And for the first time, these are these are people who usually deal with making sure that the trash is picked up on time and, you know, making sure uh, that City Hall is uh, open and doing its business properly. Um, they really are finding that adding mental health services from the city itself is hugely critical. And that has uh, cascading effects on crime, on school attendance, on um, joblessness, on homelessness, all of these that, uh, all of these uh, front and center issues that we see visibly are often rooted in mental health challenges that we do not see. And these mayors who are so, so close to the street are seeing that in real time right now. And that's a real theme that I've picked up on on my, on my trips around the state. Yeah, um, it, it, it may be a ray of sunshine in the midst of all this that we've got more attention paid to mental health than before. There were, day, there were, there were years when the state legislature... Uh, was urged over and over again to put more funding into mental health uh, uh, support around the state and didn't do much of it. And now we have Speaker David Ralston talking about how he's going to uh, uh, propose investing a lot more money in mental health uh, moving forward in the next legislative session. Patricia, let me ask you a quick question, uh, but it relates to isolation during the pandemic that I'd love to then hear all of our doctors talk about. You were hired at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in the middle of the pandemic, You've been, which means I know you're going out and seeing people on your tour of the state uh, to talk to voters uh, ahead of next year. Um, but in many ways, your communications with your colleagues probably occurs during Zoom meetings, uh, just the, as we do at Georgia Public Broadcasting. And I wonder what the feeling, sense of sort of being isolated uh, from your new uh, professional community has meant to you? Well, you know, I don't know any different, so I can't say, but you're exactly right. I had all nine of my job interviews for the AJC over <laughs> Zoom, and I have never met almost any of my colleagues. I have met the ones who worked down at the Capitol because the Capitol um, was open during the session of the General Assembly. Um, but other than that, I, I had people, people will say, oh, what is Bill Torpy like? I'm like, I have no idea. I couldn't tell you. Um, so it's really been a strange level of disconnection. Um, I'm in a, in a unique instance in that um, reporters, uh, you know, reporters who go out in the field quite a bit. I, I typically am not in a newsroom. I am out in the field wherever stories are. Um, but there is no newsroom to go back to file to. There's no editor to go have a chat with. And, and there's just no conversation to get energy from, to get ideas you hadn't thought of from. Um, and it, so it really does limit that. It also limits my ability to uh, really meet sources in a way that you could otherwise just by running into them or grabbing a cup of coffee with them, um, especially at the beginning. Um, so, you know, I don't know any different, but um, 
I'll look forward to the day when when I meet Bill Torkey, <laughs> among others. <laughs> uh, Dr. Kim, the National Institute of Mental Health issued a report in April 2021. They had lots of data in it. But I thought this was interesting in, in the context of what uh, we're talking about, Patricia. Um, the National Institute of Mental Health and numerous other government agencies and nonprofit organizations are spreading the message that physical distancing doesn't mean we must stop supporting one another. In fact, research shows that helping others is a coping strategy that can reduce the mental health impacts of the pandemic. We also know that addressing people's basic needs can help alleviate their psychiatric symptoms. For example, one study showed that food insufficiency was independently associated with all symptoms of poor mental health, but that association was mitigated for those who received free groceries or meals. We, in other words, the broadest way of saying that is we cannot afford to isolate from one another. We have to understand how important it is to, uh, for us to stay in touch with friends, family, neighbors, not even necessarily professionals like you. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, social contact and, um, and being, uh, being, um, being social is um, one of the biggest uh, factors uh, for mental wellness. And so I definitely encourage people to make an effort to reach out to friends, um, to reach out to family. And, you know, to keep in touch, you know, be kind and just ask, like, hey, how are you doing? And also, um, if, if you're struggling, don't be afraid to say, like, hey, I need, I need someone to listen. I need someone to hear me out. Um, you know, that's how we show care for each other and kindness. But, Dr. Kim, we're so bad at that. It is so hard for many of us to say, I'm hurting right now. I just need some, do you please listen to me when I tell you I'm hurting. I'm not a big guy. I'm on the radio every day. How the heck can I be hurting, <laughs> Dr. Kim? <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, you know, showing vulnerability is really hard. Um, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and it does take courage to show vulnerability, um, especially to our friends and loved ones. Um, people we care about, people we respect. Um, but I would also say, um, I think you'd be surprised. Um, I think people would be surprised, you know, like if one person says like, hey, I'm struggling a little bit, I need someone to listen to me. I really think that the other person would also say like, hey, I've also been um, having some, um, some feelings of depression, um, some, you know, lack of energy and interest. Um, you know, someone takes, if someone has the courage to, to be honest, I think that would also be reciprocated as well. Dr. Kapwicki, jump in. Yeah, social connectivity is something that we can really learn a lot from research related to people who have mental illnesses. So, for example, the Mental Health Directors Association um, has shown unequivocally that the best predictor of a good prognosis for somebody with um, schizophrenia is to have people who really care about that person and help them um, develop meaningful activities throughout the day, secure housing, secure food, secure education, et cetera, et cetera. And so I look at it almost almost um, from the opposite perspective uh, of what you just articulated, Bill, which is as a friend to my group of supporters, it's my responsibility really to reach out and to check in with them. And it's not that I call them up and say, hey, I'm worried about you. Are you sad? Have you lost interest? Do you feel guilty and worthless? Blah, blah, blah. It's to say, hey, do you want to um, plan a, a Zoom um, cook time where we make dinner together and, you know, sit down and um, talk about things that really are not explicitly related to mental health, but having that connection and truly feeling like it's a good use of time rather than just biding time is the way to develop that kind of social interconnectivity. We're seeing this from, you know, a public health psychology perspective, which is really um, related to vaccination and everything else. We either rise or we fall together. Um, and it's not just my decision about my personal liberty. It's about how everybody re, uh, views their role as being a member of a community. Dr. Reese? Sure. So um, talking about or thinking about the issue of vulnerability, um, as a man, I'm thinking about men. Um, that's not something that we necessarily do particularly well. Um, 
and 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 so thinking about the places um, and I know there are a number of organizations that have been very intentional about creating that social connection that that uh, I'm checking for my brother kind of piece um, I'm thinking about men stopping violence they started a online uh, <clears throat> uh, webinar called the huddle which was a, a place for men to kind of connect and plug in with one another um, obviously a play on the name the huddle um, but it was it was a place for for to kind of get help to get supportive also just to kind of talk about what was ever going on in your life as i think about my own life i'm thinking about some of the things that the men's ministry at my church did you know they they create these saturday morning kind of check-ins just to talk about anything everything um and and get support from from people that you have a relationship with and i think one of the other things that that creates social connection i'm, I'm fortunate um where i live and appreciate my neighborhood more than i did before in the organic kinds of connections. So uh, one of the things that mo many of us have done more of since the pandemic is we walk, right? Because we can't necessarily go to the gym. I know more about my neighborhood. I know more about my neighborhood, my neighbors. And I have been impressed with the extent to which people have, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Have a great day. Be kind to somebody. Hey, thinking about you, those kinds of things that I would have said corny on, 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 on the front end, but I really appreciate now. I have this one house that I walk about walk, walk by on a regular basis, and, and 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 the lady, she's working in her yard. She looks like, "Are we doing today?" I'm like, "I'm doing great. Thank you for asking." This is this is one of the reasons that this show matters to me so much. It's what I said at the start. The connecting tissue of this show is you are not alone. We're all experiencing some level of anxiety. Uh, dislocation as we go through this. And Dr. Reese, you just expressed that so well. You know, um, Patricia, I will say, in keeping with what Dr. Reese just mentioned, that one of the great joys of the last year for me has been the two men who I've known individually for a long time professionally, um, and I have all become very close friends. Uh, the three of us have all had some measure of success in our various uh, fields, um, and every Friday now, Patricia, we have a drink on Zoom together and spend an hour just catching up. And our relationship has become so close and so it's Here it is, quarter to 10, as we do the show live on Friday morning. And I'm already thinking of how much I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk to Mark and Kevin later today, Patricia. That kind of interaction has become so crucial to me. And, and I wonder... You know, if um, you're finding that your relationships with neighbors and, and others in your community have been of help to you. Well, so my answer is yes, of course. Um, I've connected with um, old college friends in particular who we, we, we said, why don't we all Zoom together, you know, right, when the Zoom meetings all started happening. Um, I want to be the skunk at the at the garden party right now also, though, if I may, because we have three professionals who could help us with this problem. Um, when you raised the idea of um, having a show about mental health, my first thought was, I feel like people's mental health is more stressed now that we have a vaccine that lets people protect themselves, protect their neighbors, protect their communities. And um, with more than half of Georgians not getting vaccinated, I hear so many sidebar conversations. Oh, they tested positive. Were they vaccinated? Um, I think there's a lot of finger pointing, blaming. I think people are gen genuinely feel betrayed by some people they know for not getting vaccinated. Um, and I worry, I do worry about friend groups, um, my, my whole family is vaccinated. I'm not worried about my family. I worry about school communities. I worry about people who are taking this pandemic differently and behaving differently in a way that other people thought would be more cohesive. And I hear people saying, I thought I knew this person and I don't. And it's such a deep level of stress that I would love to get thoughts from um, the professionals on board because um, I hear it all I the time. And, and you know what? Let me add to that. I think that's such a great point to make, uh, Patricia. And then the, the, uh, the, uh, what I would add to that, Dr. Kaiwiki, you go first on this, is um, I don't want to be angry at people who are unvaccinated. That doesn't do me any good to walk around being furious, being angry at those people. But at the same time, it's pretty hard not to be, in my 
from my point of view. So how do we deal with all of this? I think it's a real conundrum because, you know, sacrificing the public good for an individual um, idea really suggests something about the way a person is put together. And I think that that can be a real challenge when um, it's a friend and somebody you love or a family member and you love this person for everything else, but there's a fundamental difference in a worldview that can be very difficult to resolve. Um, What I know in uh, terms of vaccination success campaigns is that it really is about the personal relationship. And so for folks who um, have chosen not to get vaccinated or who have been very resistant to the public health um, importance of doing that, if there's a connection of a personal relationship um, of somebody who can have a a conversation with that person and um, share with them why it's so important for for that individual to change their mind, that's really the best strategy that we have um, to convert people who currently are um, unwilling to to do that uh, to accept the uh, vaccination. And so for me, um, as a professional, as a medical professional, that's kind of the foot in the door. Um, And it makes me have a little bit of optimism that if all of us who really strongly believe in the importance of science um, and the importance of vaccination from a public health perspective can convince or make a dent in in one person, if not more, um, who doesn't share that perspective, that's maybe the way that we're going to push the needle forward. So I look at it as an opportunity um, more so than uh, a a, a threat to um, a relationship. I think that's such wonderful advice because oftentimes the the conflict that are between people are between people who are very close friends or very close family and people you're saying could lean on those relationships and empower those relationships to um, maybe help and, and even solve the problem itself. And I, I hear last year it was, we're all in this together. And this year it's, 44% of us are in this together, and people are ruining everything. Wow. Um, and, but I think if people can be empathetic and hear people's concerns and hear why why they feel differently about something, I think that's just such wonderful advice, and they can really lean on those relationships instead of be angry at them. Uh, Dr. Kim, I'm going to give you the last chance on this segment and uh, uh, before we have to take a break. Yeah, um, you know, when vaccines first came, first became available, um, the way that I understood it, uh, you know, the decision to get vaccinated or not, it was a personal choice. Um, but then as time passed um, and we saw, you know, the importance of getting vaccinated uh, for the greater public health, that's when the judgment started coming out. And, you know, it's the judgment, it happens for both um, people who are vaccinated and people who are not. And, um, you know, my personally, what I believe is, is that, you know, whether you choose to get vaccinated or not, I mean, I do believe that everyone has a reason for, for the choice that they make. So I really think it's important that we be respectful, um, you know, for the choices that people make. And um, like Patricia said, you know, let's try to understand and let's try to empathize with people, regardless of whatever decision they make. Okay, I've got to get to our final break of the show. Uh, We're going to have time for uh, more of this conversation when we get back. Amelia Brock, Sam Burmistaz, and I have already put together a pretty good lineup of panels for our shows next week. But I do want to call your attention to a show we're doing next Friday, particularly. And Patricia Murphy, I'm hopeful that you will be, as you usually are, with us on Fridays. One of the great heroes of public health, Dr. Bill Fagey, will be back with us. Um, Bill was on our show uh, several months ago. You know he is the doctor who led the eradication of smallpox effort, which truly did uh, give him status as one of the greatest public health figures um, of our times. And uh, 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 he's going to come back, and we're going to talk about the history of virus and vaccine with Dr. Fagey. And we will also talk with him about his insights as to how we're dealing with the crisis uh, right now. Um, Patricia, I... uh, Start this with you, and then I know we're going to want to get the panel in here. We have obviously seen, as I said earlier in the show, the pandemic has once again dramatized the terrible, 
terrible um, uh, distinctions between uh, uh, various communities, um, uh, the disparate ways in which um, we deal with life, whether we're African-American, white, um, Hispanic, Asian-American, and uh, the National Institute of Mental Health report said there's clear evidence that the pandemic has not affected all of us equally. The most vulnerable among us are feeling mental health effects most intensely, job loss, housing instability, food insecurity, other risk factors for poor outcomes have disproportionately hit minority uh, communities. And Patricia, uh, this is an issue that politicians will certainly uh, look at, um, but it's a mental health issue as well. I think that's exactly right. And I think um, you know, something that Dr. Kutwicki said earlier made so much sense to me, um, and, and it sort of dovetails with what I've heard um, in my travels around the state, is that some people are struggling so much they don't even know how to articulate what they need. And so it is about reaching out to those people. Um, but it's so true. It really has just, um, you know, if we were... Uh, we used to say that uh, we're all in the same boat, but I've recently, of course, heard we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. And so if you were in a boat that had a hole in it, now your boat is sinking. Um, and that has to do with poverty, job loss, um, the ability to make a change in your own life, um, and even the, the mental health um, to solve all of those other cascading problems. And so, again, the mental health piece is so often the root of so many of the other causes in, in a single person's life and even their own family's struggles from there, if we're talking about a parent. Um, and so it's something that um, the, our cities in particular, when we look at crime, um, when we look at uh, kids just simply not coming back to school right now, not showing up um, because their parents can't get them there, um, it's just a, uh, again, these are long-term problems that I think we're going to continue to see, and, and this uh, uh, pandemic is exacerbating what was a sort of a, a split that is now a gulf between a lot of people. Dr. Reese, will you weigh in on this for us? Um, sure. So, um, and I appreciate the, the soberness of, of those comments and, and the space that we're in. I, I think that one of the things that it's important for all of us to recognize is these disparities existed prior to the pandemic. One of the reasons that we see the even more exponential pronounced effect on communities of colors and the poor is because the disparities existed to begin with. And so, you know, we, we have an opportunity here to begin the process of course correction um, as we start thinking about, you know, words like equity and social justice. And we really need to be thinking about how we make those words a verb in terms of what we do and not what we talk about. Um, we were talking about the importance a few moments ago of, of social connections. Uh, the reality is that there were a number of people who were isolated um, prior to the pandemic. There were a number of people who had food insecurity prior to the pandemic. And, and, and so um, we have to be careful to paint an accurate picture. The picture didn't change the clarity with which we understand the picture at this point, however, um, is, is sharper. And so the question I, 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 I leave to our elected officials and to those of us in public health and preventive medicine is, will we act? And, and I think that's really the charge to us is how do we act to address these um, behavioral health needs, how do we state physical health needs, and really to attend to those modifiable social determinants that influence health in our country. Dr. Kim? Yeah, um, what I want to say about this is, is that um, as an Asian American um, and and as someone who sees Asian American clients, um, something unique that we Asian Americans have dealt with um, in the pandemic, especially um, in the aftermath of the shootings, is, is that you know there's been increased fear. Um, you know, when someone who looks like you, um, you know, something uh, bad tragic happens to them. Um, and you know that one of the motivating factors was because of how they look. Well, then you wonder, you know, am I next? Am my loved ones next? And um, my clients have um, reported being more vigilant about their surroundings, avoiding places where they're going to be the only Asian in the room. Um, and these are, you know, really um, symptoms of secondary trauma, which are very similar to symptoms of um, PTSD. Um, because, 
you know, the lack, the increase, there has been an increase in hate crimes. Um, and a third of them um, have have occurred in the six months past the shooting. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is just something unique that we Asians have had to dealt with in the past six months. And as well as Doctor, in, the, in the entire time of the pandemic. Uh, Doctor, when you see someone um, who expresses to you their anxiety over being perhaps targeted because they are uh, Asian American, probably not necessarily Chinese at all, but after hearing about the Wuhan virus and all of that, what do you say to them to try to help relieve their unease, their anxiety over this? How do you work with them to get through that? Yeah, um, so uh, the Asian um, culture is very collectivist. So even something that has nothing to do with you, um, it feels like, you know, this, am, am I somehow involved in this? So like the shame, the shame that comes with, you know, like just being Asian or, you know, the shame that comes with like somehow I'm, I'm sort of connected to this. What I say to my clients is that this had nothing to do with you. So there's no reason to internalize the shame. Um, in fact, we need to, um, you know, externalize it and realize this has nothing to do with me. This didn't start with me. This didn't start with the people um, who are uh, with my loved ones or people who are close to me. This is something that happened, um, you know, way out there. And I'm I'm affected by this, just like everyone else. Um, Dr. Kawicki, we're running out of time. Um, how are you at Skyland Trail? Uh, how would you report on the kinds of successes you're having in dealing with the, the people who come to you who are experiencing uh, pandemic-related impacts from their mental health? Um, is, is it a long road toward success for a lot of the people uh, that you see? Unfortunately, it is, and we know that many mental illnesses are chronic medical problems, just like diabetes or other things that you can control, um, but you don't necessarily cure. So it requires lifelong vigilance um, for people who have a predisposition for depression, for example. We know that the more uh, episodes of depression somebody has experienced historically, the more likely it is that they're going to have another episode in the future. Um, and so it is um, something that we're looking at very rigorously. Um, one of the bonuses of the pandemic is that um, telepsychiatry and telemedicine has been very helpful for a lot of people who otherwise couldn't access those medical services. But there are certain groups that we've been working with um, of people who have bipolar disorder and schizophrenia in particular who don't really uh, do as well with teletherapy um, as in person. So we're learning from this experience. Um, Dr. Ray Kotwicki, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we are completely out of time. But thank you, Dr. Kotwicki, Dr. Kim, Dr. Roy Reese, Patricia Murphy, for a really fascinating conversation today. I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Stay healthy. Yes, wear a mask when you're inside. And please get a vaccine if you haven't done it. See you all on Monday.